Welcome to Jamie's Corner Podcast. This is a show where we talk about veganism, spirituality, animal rights, friends, family, struggles. I don't know. I kind of use this as my own therapy session, you know, just talking things through, really. So let's have some fun. I interview a lot of different activists, yogis, nutritionists. We got some doctors on here, veterinarians. You name it, just a lot of really great people. So thanks for joining me. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. In today's episode, I have Mitali Debekeisler on the podcast. She's also known as the vegan book publisher. And she's going to talk to you guys today about how to write a book. She's going to talk about her schooling, how she then got into some drug addiction problems. She's going to talk about her upbringing in India and how Hinduism... She's going to share her story on how she went from being raised vegetarian to then going back to eating meat and then fully becoming vegan. And now she spends her days promoting and now she spends her days publishing vegan books books that promote sustainability cruelty-free products vegan businesses and she's just doing amazing work so i'm so excited to share her and her story with you all right guys enjoy the episode Last time I was in India was in 2019. I was in Goa, so I had to go to an all-night rave. You have to do that. So there I was at five in the morning. The sun is coming up, and I'm on. It's like a, a rave that was happening in a bar that spilled out onto the beach. So we were still all dancing like lunatics at five a.m. Yeah. in the morning, and then just suddenly about thirty cows decided to join us. And it was really strange. They kind of look at us going, you stupid human beings. And we're all like, you know, with glow sticks and everything. That's epic. That sounds like my kind of party. They, they were so calm. They weren't rattled by the music. And it, it was so nice because I just, it made me sad because I just thought of the cows in the UK and they would be rattled by that because all they know really is that human beings are horrible creatures who just hurt them. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. (laughs) This is so great. I love what you're up to and I'm just so excited to share with my audience who you are, your story, and we're going to talk about veganism. We're going to talk about book publishing. We're going to talk about different forms of activism. We're going to talk about struggles, drugs, and addiction. We're going to talk about trying to fit in, I think is also going to be a really nice theme here and how that's led you to eating meat, but also led you to where you are now. So why don't you give a little introduction about yourself for people that don't know you? Who are you and what are you up to these days? Okay, so I'm Mitali, uh, the vegan publisher, and I work with vegan, plant-based, ethical, sustainable entrepreneurs or experts. I'm now working with a couple of non-profit leaders as well. And the aim is to for people who've never written a book, they have no idea how to even go about writing a book. I help them through the process. And at the end of it, they have a professionally published book. And it's used for marketing reasons, which is why I do specifically work with entrepreneurs or non-profit leaders or even charity leaders. But people who have a, a brand of some sort and they need to get more eyeballs on what they do. And especially within the vegan, the plant-based movement. I mean, we've come a long way. 
I've been vegan since 2012 and even in just 10 years it's like night and day I remember in 2012 even in the UK I would say to people I'm vegan and they'll go what is that I had one gentleman that thought I, I I had some sort of disease and he was like, oh, he took my hand and went, oh, oh, oh man, I'm really sorry, my darling. Can you tell me what that is? And I'll do whatever I can oh to help you. And God. I was just like, no, I don't. <laughs> How do I explain? No, this is, um, I think he must have said that I had like, like measles or something. I don't know what he thought I, oh, I said no. to him, like some sort of affliction. Uh, and he just he sat down and he's just like, tell me what this is and I'll do whatever I can. I said, like, no, I, I, it's not a disease. <laughs> <laughs> it's um a disease of not wanting to harm animals sorry exactly exactly it's not it's a good thing you know i'm wanting to not cause harm rather than i've been harmed in some way um and compared to now in 2022 yes there's some people who really don't like vegans but at least they know who we are you know you're not going to have somebody now who's going to say what is that so we've come on in leaps and bounds but i think we can all agree in the movement we're certainly not where we want to be. We're still the minority. We still have to go around telling people that we do not contribute to animal torture. Uh, it's like, why? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Why are we having to label our stuff as non-cruelty or non-torture or non-murderous, but the other stuff is normal in inverted quotes? Should be the other way. Like, you know how you have, like... Um, I actually listened to a couple of your podcasts, uh, Jamie. I listened to a couple of your podcasts. Um, and I really like the one where you, you were talking about how you have... Um, on cigarette packets, you have these warnings. You have horrible pictures now of, like, you know, a liver that's completely decimated by smoking or a, a lung that is just completely blackened. And it's really helped to stop people smoking. And that should be done on meat and all animal products and dairy products and i just think well yeah that's that's absolutely that's true really that should be labeled the bad stuff should be labeled why are we labeling the good stuff you know so my my reason for being the vegan publisher is i used to be a copywriter and a ghostwriter so i wrote all kinds of things you know landing pages sales pages emails articles, newspaper articles, anything you think of I've written at some point in my life. But when I was researching with all my previous clients, the piece of content that really put them on the map and really got them that ton of visibility and attention and the media and that sort of thing was when they became an author. It impresses people. You know, having a website, people are like, whoop-de-doo, you have a website. So does everybody. It's just not a big deal. Being on social media, everyone's on social media. It's not a big deal. But as soon as you say you're an author, people go, oh, you must really know what you're talking about on this subject because you're an author. And they listen. And that's why when I realized, you know, my activism is to really just expand uh, and increase the visibility of these incredible plant-based, ethical, sustainable entrepreneurs and charity leaders and nonprofit leaders so they get even more eyeballs on what they're doing. And then let's just, fingers crossed, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm old. I'm a lot older than you, Jamie, but I'm not saying I'm old. I'm in my 40s. I'm going to be 44 in a few weeks. So I'm not and old. Gorgeous. You would never even know. I mean, glowing skin, everything. Yes. I love you already, Jamie. I love you already. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm not saying I'm old. But I'm, I'm not what you'd class as young. Um, I would say I'm probably at the midpoint of my life, maybe even a little bit beyond the midpoint of my life. And my goal is I want to die in a vegan normal world. 
you know that is my goal where i'm not saying all meat eaters will be gone by then but it'll be this weird thing that a small group of people do you know how we, we see documentaries of you know tribes in these forests they're still living this old life you're like oh my god isn't that amazing that's what i want me teachers to be these strange right. old communities where you just go isn't that odd that they're still doing that it should not to be kind and not want to kill and not want to torture should not be the exception it should be the rule right. and this is my activism to try and get as many people to understand that through books it should be the moral baseline and you're absolutely right. I think, you know, we have to have some sort of optimism in this movement where we will reach that, we will get there and that's what keeps us going. 100%, just in 10 years, like I said, the difference in 10 years just in the UK is astounding. I, I'm trying to imagine where the next 10 years is going to go. You know, especially now we've got, you know, I think I remember listening to a podcast recently and it was... um one of the major chicken farms in the UK. And he was saying by 2030, he's probably going to phase it out and go. And that's a major chicken farm. And he's already thinking, yeah, I don't think this is going to, this is not going to be sustainable. You know, the, the tide is turning and more and more people just going, no, I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. Right. So we, I know, especially in this movement, we are, we have to, we sometimes force ourselves to see a lot of images and videos that are just, heartbreaking and you know i try actually now keep away from it because i know i don't need to see that anymore <laughs> i'm already converted mm -hmm. so i don't need it i don't need to mm -hmm. torture myself by seeing horrific things that's just going to send me to bed and not be doing my work and doing what i need to be doing to further the movement so i don't even i literally when i'm scrolling through on social media it's like nope not for me not even looking no. at it closing my eyes i don't need to see it i mm -hmm. value it because it needs to be shown for people who are still not aware of what's happening, but I don't need to see it. So how did you make the connection? Let's what, what I know that you grew up not eating animals, but where was that real ethical connection? Because I feel like, you know, part of Hinduism and culture, you people just don't eat it, the animals, but you're like vegan. Like you're you're full Yeah, vegan. I'm beyond what Indian really. I actually it, it it can be contentious for Indians uh, too. They get quite a it's interesting. It's interesting seeing the 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 roadblocks of veganism they're different in different cultures so in india you would assume they'd be you know more likely to be vegan because like i said most of them are vegetarian anyway and yet there still is a sense of entitlement to dairy and then they get upset you know when i'm over there i've even had it with some of my family and they'll just they'll make me a, a cup of chai with loads of cow's milk and i'll say no <laughs> Give it to me black. Oh, thank you. No, thank you. I'm not having animal juice. In, don't want it inside my body. Thank you very much. It should have been left in the animal. Um, and then they get upset because it's in, in India. Indian culture is very based around food, more so than UK culture, which, which is based around alcohol. Um, so dairy features a lot in Indian food. And because it's part of the culture, when you reject it, that person feels you're rejecting them. And I'm going, no, no, no. I'm not rejecting you. Love you to pieces. It's not you I'm rejecting. It's this ideology around us taking something from a mother that's not even designed for us. But they don't get that. So, yeah, it, it actually came from my veganism, came from nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with culture. As I've just explained, in India, a lot of dairy is consumed. It actually came from a cat who uh, I wish she was around. I'd show you, Jamie, but I think she's sleeping somewhere. 
But this cat turned up in my life in 2010. Um, I didn't even want her, I'll be honest with you. I was just like, there's going to be fur everywhere. There's going to be fur in my tea, fur in my knicker drawer. Fur just gets everywhere. We all know as soon as you have a cat or a dog, they get in places they don't even go to and you still get fur in there. Um, so I just thought, yeah, I don't want a cat. But my little sister just begged and begged and begged and she really wanted a cat. So we, we eventually relented. Um, and then within a few weeks, I was just watching this this tiny cat just understand the different personalities within the household. She'd be very aware of who needed her that day, who's had a bad day at work, who's had a terrible day at school. My little sister was still at school at that time. And I just thought, oh, my God. And then realising that cats don't even make it into the top 20 of intelligent animals. We eat a couple of the most intelligent animals, pigs and um, octopus. And just being horrified by that. And that was it. I didn't even go vegetarian. I was vegetarian when I was born only because I come from a Hindu background. It wasn't really a choice. It was just, um, you know, my parents are Hindu, so we don't eat meat. There we go. It wasn't my choice or anything like that. And then as I got into my rebellious teens, I wanted to fit in with the society around me. I was I'm, I was living in a predominantly white community. So of course, back then, even vegetarianism was weird. They didn't even know what vegan was. Um, so I started eating meat, sadly. If I, if I can go back in a time machine now, I would give myself a rigorous shake and be like, what the hell are you doing, you silly girl? Don't be doing that. But at the time, I just wanted to fit in and everyone was going to McDonald's and KFC and all of those now I know horrible places. Um, so I just did that fit in. But yeah, believe it or not, it was a, a little cat that came into my life. And that's why I just thought, I can't do this. It still wasn't overnight. I mean, I think the whole process took about two years. I did that mm-hmm. thing that a lot of us do when um, maybe you don't. You're, you're, I'm also, I think I said this to you before. I'm very, very jealous of Gen Z because you guys are just far more evolved than we were at that age. <laughs> far more evolved than even we are at this age now um it still took me about two years because i did this thing of oh well i'll just buy meat and eggs from ethical farms right. you right. know and you, you you fool yourself it's like oh it's okay as long as a pig had some field to walk around in and wasn't in a shed it's okay to kill him and eat him no no right. it's not um but i went through that for about two years but again, it was just in the back of my mind that it's it's like, it's just like, it, it, it's like, you know, it's like a law for, it's like, I'm not part of the KKK, but I'm still going to be racist. That doesn't mm-hmm. make it okay. So it's, right. that's what I was doing. It's like, I'm not buying factory farmed animal products. So that's okay. But I knew deep down I wasn't. So it lasted about two years until I couldn't ignore my conscience anymore. And I was just like, that's it. Do you think you were still trying to fit in at that point? Was it just more convenient? Like, was it the taste? What What was keeping you? At that point, I'd gone beyond the... I mean, my fitting in era, I would say, ended at the age of about 30. I finally grew up. It took me 30 years, unfortunately, Jamie. Um, but I finally grew up and I realised there's no such thing as fitting in. You have to be comfortable yourself with who you are. And then the people who like you will like you. And the people who don't like you, they know where the door is. But... Mm. To really embody that, it took me 30 years. So by the time I went vegan, I I was already in my early 30s. 
So I'd gotten over this need to fit in and to please people. And I was now my own woman. So that wasn't the reason why I did the whole ethical farming nonsense. Mm. The reason I did that was, again, the brainwashing from a very early age that protein, we all now know that's just nonsense, that you can get more than enough protein from beans and pulses. And that, and that it's in fact, it's a better form of protein than animal protein. Um, but I, you know, I fell for that nonsense, you know, that you need protein, um, iron, B12, you know, all that nonsense. Dairy, well, you need that for calcium, which is like now, now looking back, it's like how ridiculous is that? Think of some of the mm -hmm. biggest mammals that walk on the planet, like elephants. <laughs> they're vegetarian, they, they're, they're vegan. It's not stopping them exactly. from being powerful. They're not going, hmm, I need to have some milk from another species to grow big and strong. So it, it doesn't make sense. But when you're indoctrinated into something, since you're a baby. So, yeah, I kind of, I worried about my health. I thought I'd become malnutrition and, and all of that mm. stuff. And then the more I read into it, and the more I realized that actually, no, I can get all the protein I need. You know, I, I don't need fish for omega-3 and 6 oils. You know, I, I, that's when I started to become confident. That's when I became vegan. And so how did your parents react to your decision to leave the uh, vegetarian lifestyle? <laughs> um, well, my dad passed away in 2007, so he never saw me as a vegan. I think he would have been very happy. My dad was very, I, I'm, out of all the kids, there's four of us. Um, I'm the oldest, and I would say I'm the only one like my dad. The three others, the two sisters and a brother, are more like my mother. Um, so I was the only one like my dad. So I think my dad would have actually got it. I can't say for sure. My mother thought it was a phase, like they all mm. did. Oh, it's just a phase. They'll come out of it. Yeah. And then after a year later, she was like, hmm, this isn't a phase. And she still rebels against it. You know, she still doesn't understand. She still does this whole, but it's just you. Just you can't make a difference. And I have to convince her that it's like, but if we all thought like that, then none of us do anything. Then we wouldn't have had slavery would still be a thing. Women yeah. not being able to vote and being property of men would still be a thing. All of these horrible things would still be a thing if we just sat there and thought, oh, I'm just one person, I'm just one woman. We've got to think it doesn't matter. Whatever we can do, the little bit we can do, all contributes, you know? Exactly. But we're getting there. You know, I, I had a bit of a breakthrough with her just literally a few weeks ago when I was... Um, talked about how in the UK you legally are, are allowed a certain percentage of pus and urine and blood in milk and that kind of made a go oh <laughs> you can see her face she was a bit like so she's oh, I get the feeling and she's now sort of like eyeing up my ultimate and going oh, maybe I'll just try some milk in my cereal I'm like feel free to do so go for it see what happens my boyfriend is his dad was from bangalore from india and oh wow he, yeah and so he's from here and but he goes to india you know some summers and spends time with family over there but he talks about how there's literally cows walking around the street oh yes there I love is it. this i right there is this idea of like love the cow respect for the cow but i think it somehow gets mixed up or confused because what I don't understand is if we're taking the baby away from the mother, how is that respecting the animal? Like, I just... 
Again, it's that cognitive dissonance. I mean, I, I've, I remember being, last time I was in India was in 2019, just before the pandemic hit in, in early 2020. And I was in Goa and I went, oh, I was in Goa, so I had to go to an all-night rave. It's a kind of, you have to do that. So there I was at five in the morning, the sun is coming up and I'm on, it's it's like a, a rave that was happening in a bar that spilled out onto the beach. So we were still all dancing like a lunatic, like lunatics at 5 a.m. Yeah. in the morning. And then just suddenly about 30 cows decided to join us. And it was really strange. They kind of look at us going, you stupid human beings, what are you doing? <laughs> and we're all like, you know, with glow sticks and everything. <laughs> That's epic. That sounds like my kind of party. Oh my God, these humans are crazy. What are they like, Joey? But they, they were very, they were so calm. They weren't rattled by the music. And it, it was so nice because I just, it made me sad because I thought, I just thought of the cows in the UK. And they would be rattled by that, you know, because all they know really is that human beings are horrible creatures who just hurt them. Yeah. And the fact that these cows felt close enough to come to a bunch of a bunch of ravers with glow sticks, you know, with this pounding music coming out, and they were quite fine to get close to us. Um, yes, looking at us as if as if we're weird, but not scared of us at all. It's a beautiful thing. And yet, again, that cognitive dissonance is sort of like. Okay, so we in India, we love the cows so much they can literally roam around and do what they want. Traffic literally mm-hmm. stops for cows. I don't know if you've, I don't know what it's like in Bangalore. I've never been, I'll be honest with you, Jamie, but I've, I've been to a number of major cities in India and traffic mm-hmm. literally stops for a cow crossing the road. They don't even That's stop for human too. beings. Like wow. human beings, you, your traffic doesn't stop for them. But as soon as a cow's on the road, all the traffic slows down. It's like, let the cow do what they need to do and then they start up again so there's all this respect and then they're still taking the milk though and yeah and parts of india they do eat meat too yeah which was like uh, when my mother heard about that she found that really really odd i think that that's that's one of the the weird things about um india i think it's similar to the us i would say as well you can tell me if i'm wrong um because you know i kind of see each state in the us as a country in itself because when i've met people from different states you guys are so different that i'm like yeah. i can't really think of you guys as american it's like you guys are from a continent in itself and i would say india is like that so i will have friends who travel in parts of mm-hmm. india and they'll come back and be like, oh, we did this and we did that. And expecting me to go, oh, my God, that's amazing. That's like, and I'm sat there going, mm-hmm. No idea what mm. you're talking about. I don't, this is not my yeah. culture, so I don't know. I'm happy for you. Sounds like you had a, an amazing time. But nothing about what you said, you, you might as well be talking about another foreign right. country. So, yeah, there right. are. I mean, when I didn't, it, it took me well into my 20s to realize that some parts of India actually do eat meat and i was like whoa like mm-hmm. that's not where where we that's not what we come from so yeah it's interesting to see that but i still think it's i mean vegetarians are the overwhelming majority in india but yes and i think what's also sad now is as india starts to be, develop into a superpower meat eating has gone up so where it's, where it's like going down in Western countries because of the vegan and plant-based movement, it's going up in India. And I'm like, no, guys, no, 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 you guys were already ahead of the West. Don't go backwards. But sadly, that's what's happening. That's crazy. Wow. That's unfortunate. So why don't we backtrack a little bit and talk about journalism and 
school and how you it led you into becoming the vegan book publisher that you are now? Um, when I was at school, I'll be honest with you, Jamie, I, I just wanted to keep my parents happy, like a typical good little Indian girl. You just want to do whatever your parents want you to do. And they wanted me to follow medicine. I know, it's so boring, isn't it? Educated Indian woman, there's nothing else for her to do apart from being a doctor. So <laughs> I literally was meant to be like a, a walking, talking stereotype. I think that's what I was meant to be. Um, and to be honest, I was happy to go along with that. I wasn't against the idea. I think being a doctor is quite a noble profession. It's a helping profession. Um, and from a selfish point of view, everyone needs doctors. That's never going to stop, you know. It's not going to be like, oh, we don't need those anymore. So, And now, knowing what happens with the, you know, the typical standard American diet, more doctors are needed more than ever, really, let's be honest. Um, so I was happy to go along with it. And I've always... I've always written, I've always enjoyed writing, but I never really saw it as a career option. So I was happy and I even, I, in the UK, our first sort of big exams are called GCSEs and then we have the next lot of exams which are called A-levels and those determine whether you get into university or college as you guys call it. Yeah. Um, so I did my GCSEs. I, I specifically picked subjects that would help me with medicine and I'd even picked out the A-levels I was going to do, which was going to help me um, study medicine at university. And then one of my teachers took one of the essays that I'd written and sent it into a public competition, a nationwide competition, um, without telling me, by the way. <laughs> she just sent it oh, in. Wow. Thought it was good enough and just sent it in. And then she got she heard back from them and I'd won one of the 30 places to go uh, and do like a summer school in Edinburgh in Scotland where they would teach me all, you know, how to do different kinds of writing. So I was, again, even when I won it, I wasn't thinking, oh yes, this is a career. For me, it was just like, this is just something fun to do. Let's just go and do it. So I did that. It was like a two week, um, you stay over in halls of residence at Edinburgh University. Um, and one of the tasks we had was me and five other kids we actually wrote an episode of a long-running soap in the uk and that ended up airing it took a few you know a few weeks but it, a few months but then it aired and that was the changing point i think you know before then it was just something fun that i did and i was happy for it to remain something fun that i did but seeing that something that i could have a hand in writing could end up on tv and millions of people can watch it. Wow. That was like, oh, wow. And that is when things changed. I really start to see writing as a something that I can do as a career. So I came back. I changed my A-levels. Uh, my dad didn't speak to me for six months. He was so upset. He really wanted a, you know, a doctor in the family. <sighs> yeah, so I had to disappoint him. He started speaking to me again after six months, thank God. Um, yeah. And then I went off to university and I ended up doing media studies. Um, yeah. So that was, the, that was the first big change. Otherwise, I'd probably be like a doctor or a surgeon uh, or something like that um, uh, right now. Um, so that was the first big change. Um, and then the next big change happened. It was much later on. So I went to university. Um, I ended up, I had, I think I had major issues growing up because I grew up in a predominantly white community um in the 80s very different to you know we're far more evolved now and we talk about things like race and you know fitting in 
back then there wasn't much conversation around that sort of thing and I also felt very isolated there was no other brown um, children or even uh, even mm. even a black kid would have been great you know just somebody of color would but there was no one there was just me and my brothers and sisters in a sea of white faces and you know I, I felt very isolated uh, felt like I didn't belong so when I went to university and we have this thing called Freshers Week. I don't know what, I'm sure you have something similar in the US, but it's the first week when you go a little bit crazy, you're drinking 24 oh, seven. Syllabus week, silly week. Oh, is that what you guys call it? Oh my God, I've learned yeah. something. We call it Freshers Week because the first, uh, the first uh, you know, year they're fresh at university. So they're called freshers. A bit like how you guys, what do you get? You call them freshmen, don't you? It's similar. Freshmen, yeah. So you guys say freshmen, we say freshers. So that week is Freshers Week and you don't do any work. In fact, you don't sleep, no. basically. You right. just drink like you don't have a liver and mm -hmm. you just go a little bit crazy um, yeah. and it's called Freshers Week. Um, I met people and, you know, back at that time, they weren't just doing alcohol. They were doing ecstasy and MDMA and, you know, amphetamines and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And I remember feeling like, oh, I probably shouldn't take that. But I was just, the, it was the very first time, Jamie, in my entire life, I felt like people liked me and accepted me just as I am. So I just wanted to do whatever they were doing <laughs> just to carry on fitting in. So I started mm -hmm. to take amphetamines and MDMA and stuff like that. But the, the, the sad thing is that when you, with any kind of addiction, you don't see where the line is until you've crossed it. So with a lot of those friends, they were able to dabble in drugs. But then when the time came to like, now we've got to get serious, we need to study. We're not here to party. They were able to give it up. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that I have an addictive personality. And you people don't realize you have an addictive personality until you have an addiction. <laughs> That's just the way it works. No one tells you. And I couldn't give it up. And it kind of took over my life. Mm -hmm. I ended up not studying, not turning up to classes. I ended up getting kicked out of university, which means I lost my accommodation as well because the accommodation is linked to the university. And I ended up homeless. Um, I ended up in homeless shelters for about a, a year. So that was like a real shock to the system coming from a really, you know, a, a very comfortable I mean, we were a poor family, we were a poor immigrant family, but we had everything we needed, you know? My mm -hmm. dad made sure that, you know, what we didn't have in technology and designer clothes, we had what we needed. To come from that really looked-after background and then suddenly be homeless was like a real, yeah, a real shock to the system. What was your experience like in these homeless shelters? You know what, Jamie? This this I've had a number of people ask me this, and I always say... Mm, I should not be the poster child for not taking drugs because I paint a really good picture. It, mm. it was it was terrible. On the one hand, I remember like one of the most vivid um, memories I have is going to this homeless shelter and we weren't allowed TVs in our rooms. So you had these tiny little rooms, which now looking back is like, like, like a prison cell now. But at the time I was just happy just to be warm and have a bed and mm -hmm. not not having to think about sleeping on a park bench and being yeah. safe. Remember, if you're sleeping outside, it's not just the, the elements you have to worry about, it's the men you have to worry about as well. Right. Um, so the fact that I was in a women's shelter and I was safe and away from that, I was just, as far as I was concerned, I, I just, you know, you just booked me into the Hilton 
But looking back now, I realised that was a little more than a prison cell, really. Mm. Um, but we weren't allowed TV. So we had, um, on every corridor, you had a specific TV, TV room that all the women can gather and watch TV. I remember the first night, I thought, I'll go and watch some TV. So I went down to the TV room. And there was this huge sign above the couch that says, please check for needles before sitting down. I remember thinking, ooh. Yeah, it sounds awful, doesn't it? Like you have to literally yeah. turn up. And I still, even now, you find this really weird, Jamie. If I, if I ever came to meet you, you'd probably find me looking at your couch and I'm wanting to, and I'd stop myself. But I want to turn up couches. I, it's still there, this need to turn mm. up couches and make sure there's no needles lying there. If I accidentally sit on it, it will, you know, it'll prick through into me. Mm. Um, but yeah, was, if you think about it, it was horrible. I was in an environment where there was, you know, drug users. But in reality, I had an amazing time. It really opened me up to women who had, you know, been abused, women who, no one chooses to be like that. That's the key thing to remember. You know, the way we look down on drug users and the way we look down on junkies or prostitutes, like, who the hell chooses that? No one chooses, they, they deserve our empathy and they deserve our help to get them out of this situation. Not to be belittled or made to feel worse. Do you know what I mean? Any of us can end up, all it takes is a few things to go wrong, a perfect storm, and we could be in that situation. So it really taught me a lot of empathy for human beings, all kinds of human beings, to the point mm. that I literally don't judge. Now, if someone tells me, like, they're still taking drugs, for example, um, or they've been homeless, or they, they're a work, we call it working girl. Uh, it's a nice way of saying a prostitute. I don't know if you guys mm. use that in the US. Um, but yeah, I, I don't judge. It's all like, well, we all do what we right. need to do to survive, you know? Um, so my experience, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change the experience of the world. But looking back now, talking about it, I go, okay, that was pretty terrible. I was only 19 at the time. Mm. And I was quite a young 19 as well, quite a sheltered 19-year-old. So it actually was traumatic. But I don't remember it as traumatic. I now only remember the good things. I remember just being with mm. some incredible women um, who are sadly no longer alive now because of the lifestyle, their life expectancy was... Mm. They were dead before they were in their 40s, before they were even my age, sadly. Because if you're, if you're doing drugs uh, and, you know, you're a working girl and the dangers associated, a lot of the times they'll be beaten up. Yeah. They have to deal with a lot of um, sexual violence your your life expectancy isn't going to be all that great, is it? Um, but it really t it taught me a lot, so I wouldn't change it for the world. Well, the thing with addiction is it is it, it's like a disease people don't realize, and I think oftentimes people judge and they don't actually think of it as like a cancer. It's like a a, a disease that takes over. It literally body. Yeah. is a mental illness, and in the same way yeah. that you don't judge someone for being schizophrenic yeah. or bipolar, you don't judge someone for being addicted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I hate this sort of labeling and criminalization that happens. Like, what the hell's going on? It, you know, these people are ill. They're ill. <laughs> you know, I was yeah. ill. And thankfully, because I ended up being put into a great shelter and, you know, I thankfully didn't go down the road of selling myself or doing anything like that. I had a wonderful team of, um, I had a life coach. I had an addiction counselor. I just had this wonderful team who just took me out of it and said, no, we don't want you. Cause they, I think they recognize that some of the girls, sadly they're too far gone. So all they could literally mm -hmm. do is just try and look after them 
as much as they can, but they know these girls are going to go out and they're going to work and they're going to sell themselves and they're going to take drugs. Whereas with me, I think this one's really young. Maybe Mm. we can fix her. Maybe we can fix her before she goes down this horrible path that Mm. all these other women are doing. Um, So I was very lucky that these people came in and just said, no, this is not what you're going to do. And I was clean with it. I think it took me... It's difficult to remember when you when your brain is drug adult. It's difficult. Time operates right. in a very different way. But I would say probably six to nine months, best part of a wow. year to go completely clean. And then I've never looked back since then. Um, and look at where you are now. I know. I know. Really I know. Did you? I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, the listeners won't be able to see this because they're only hearing it. But I used to this hair. I lost all my hair, so I was completely bald. Because my weight plummeted to such depths. I think I was at five stone at one stage or five and a bit stones. So my periods completely stopped. Um, and then I, I lost my nails completely. They just fell from the beds and I lost all my hair. So then it's grown back. Thank God it's all there now. Oh, yeah. But it's um, it's really fine baby hair. I used to have this kind of really, you know, typical thick Indian hair that you can sit on i mean that's why india is the number one place to go and get hair extensions because there's just so much hair about you know um but i can't grow that hair anymore it's completely changed by the chemistry of my hair so now i have this sort of very fine um what i call british hair i actually now have british hair (laughs) you know because most british women have sort of like you know it's like a medium to fine flyaway hair that's what i got but i used to have indian hair before the drug abuse um, wow. Well, you still look great. You're, oh, you're thank you. Great, and that you have a story to tell. So yes, like I said, I don't even that even the losing the hair, I don't regret it because I don't think I'd be half the person that I am now. You know, if I hadn't gone through that, you know, I I see some of my friends, especially female friends, who you know they worry about their looks so much. And I know that I still have my own, doesn't every woman, we all have insecurities, especially at the moment, I'm kind of, I'm thinking I'm premenopausal, I've actually got a doctor's appointment later this week Mm. to get it, but I think I'm going into menopause slowly, so again, all the insecurities that come with that, Um, but I always go back to, I was able to be bald at the age of 19, and it didn't kill me, and I coped. If you can do that, you can go through anything, woman. You'll be fine, do you know what I mean? And that gives me an inner strength that I wish I can give to every woman. I wish I could just give it out and say that, and that would make you feel like it doesn't matter if you put on a few pounds or you've got a few zits. It really ultimately doesn't matter. It's what you do in the world that counts, not how you look. And that's what you're doing right now. You're taking this amazing business that you have and you're using that to spread compassion and spread awareness worldwide. So why don't you talk a little bit about your book, The Freedom Master Plan, and how you're teaching people to write these pieces of you know, information, to write these books, um, and, and basically grow their businesses. I mean, you've had some real success in that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had some incredible clients, I must say. They've been fantastic. But yeah, The Freedom Master Plan came about because... When I was researching the book, I really wanted to find out, well, why don't, why don't more people write books? As in entrepreneurs and experts, you know, that, you know, I'm not talking about fiction writers or children books writers. That's a whole other thing that I have no experience in. But I just thought, isn't it, it's interesting. I remember, I remember doing a talk just before the pandemic uh, and I was in a room of about 90 people. 
and they were all entrepreneurs, business owners, brand owners, you know. And I got them to, you know, stand up. And I said, I want you to stay standing up if you have a website. And pretty much everybody stayed standing up because who doesn't have a website now? And so I want you to stay standing up if you're using social media um, for for business. And a few people sat down. I assume those people are doing things like SEO and that sort of thing. Mm. But most people have a social media. And I went through a few things. I was like, tell me, stay standing up if you've got business cards. You know, stay standing up if you've got a blog. And you'll get a few people that sit down here and there, but the majority stay standing up. And then I'd say, stay standing up if you're a published author. And there's suddenly everyone, <laughs> practically everyone sits down. And, every, and, and I did actually have one person stay standing up. And it was quite interesting. Everybody burst into a spontaneous round of applause and I didn't even ask them to they wow. just started clapping this gentleman because he was a he's like really you're a pop what's your book is it on Amazon let me go and get it and I, and I remember I just said to the audience like isn't that interesting like you wouldn't do that if someone told you they've got a LinkedIn profile you'd be like well done LinkedIn that's amazing right. you'd be like so what you know everyone has a LinkedIn right. profile but as soon as someone has, it says an author it's like wow you really do know what you're talking about here. You, you really do have authority. I mean, there is a reason why the word author is inside the word authority. You know, it's not a coincidence. It's the same thing. So the reason I wrote The Freedom Masterman is to explain that to people. Because a lot of, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs who quite like the idea of writing a book, but they're just not really sure how does a book fit into my business? You know, so I write the thing, great, it's now published. What the hell do I do with it? Like, how does it fit in to my existing marketing plan and what I do and how I generate leads and how I make sales and how does it fit in? So what I did was I interviewed seven of my previous clients who've all went on to do incredible things with their book and really take their business to the next level. And I just said, I want you guys to tell me everything you did. Just don't, no holds barred. Tell me what you did with your book. And they start to give me all these amazing stories of how they were able to become keynote speakers and how they were able to close more leads, get six-figure contracts, and using their book as like a, a bait almost. Um, and Ooh. I just said, this was amazing. I was like, I just recorded everything and put it all into my book. So now the the point of my book is if you're thinking as a business owner or a brand owner of some sort if you're thinking about writing a book go and read my book the freedom mass fan and i promise you by the end of it either you will have a plan that's why i call it the master plan you'll have a plan mm -hmm. of exactly how a book will fit into your your business or your brand or you'll decide it's the worst idea ever but then that's a good thing as well because then you no longer have to torture yourself over whether you should write a book, you'll know that, okay, this wouldn't work for me. Let's just get rid of that idea and move on with your life. But at least you will mm. never have to sit there and think, should I write a book or not? The Freedom Mass Plan will answer that question for you by the end of it. You will make a decision by the end of it. It seems so daunting, like to actually sit there and write, you know, a couple hundred pages. I mean, where does somebody start with this kind of thing? <laughs> yes, I always say writing a book is a bit like being at the bottom of a mountain. You know where you need to be, but you're thinking, how the hell do I get there? Like, that's where I need to be, but I can see it, but I don't know how to get to it. And that's, and that's, that's kind of what I do with uh, in the vegan publisher 
Um, there's two arms of it. There's the book consultancy arm of the business and there is the book publishing arm of the business. And the consultancy part is that is the bit. I'm Think of me as your mountain guide that kind of is ahead of you leading the way and saying this is where you need to step and this is where you need to go. And I'm literally guiding you because, yeah, I mean, writing a book is daunting unless you've done a PhD, then it will be the longest, most detailed piece of content you will write in your life. The only people I know have written maybe more detailed and more um, volume are PhD holders, mm. you know? So I am actually working with a couple of PhD holders and they're great because they're, they're just not daunted because they've written, you know, they've done PhDs. They're used to writing like, in fact, one lady, her PhD was 80,000 words and her book is only going to be 40,000 words. So she's not wow. even daunted at all. But my average client... Like the longest thing they've ever written is probably a business report, which will be, right. what, 5,000 words? So it's very, very daunting. And I will say, you know, the best place to start is to actually, don't even start, research your audience and find out what they want. That's the key thing. Once you find out what they want, then you can break it down because you're the expert you can break it down to what people need to know first and then second and then third and then fourth. So, so I mean, let me give you an example. Say you're a, a fitness coach, but you specialize in working with people who literally have never done any exercise in their life before. You know straight away that if in the first chapter you're talking about doing waiter walks and bench presses, they're going to be like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? I've never done exercise before and you're talking to me about right. I should be benching things. No, that's not going to happen. You know the order that you take people through. So you probably start off with like, let's do a half an hour walk. Let's just get you active and walking and that's it. You know when you have a client who's never exercised before, the process you take them through till they come out at the end as a fit person. That's mm -hmm. all you're doing with a book. And when I explain that to someone, suddenly you can see the light bulb go, it's not really that difficult. This is like, no, you're making it difficult because you're seeing it as a mountain with a path that you can't see. But you actually know the path because you're already the expert at what you do. So mm. if you're a fitness coach, you're a life coach, you're an IT consultant, you, you, you own a non-profit, you know the process you need to take someone through from them to go to A to B. All you're doing that is just putting that into a book format. So it actually, when and when I go through the process with my clients, it you know they're always amazed. I mean, the the biggest compliment I get with my programs is I didn't even think about writing a book. I was just so busy following your instructions and doing my homework. They call it homework, which I find really funny. Like I'm, a, I'm they're at school with me or something, yeah. but they're just going off and they just do their homework, what they need to do. And they just keep doing the homework. The next thing you know, a book has been put together. Wow. And it, it takes... I definitely need that. Yeah. It just takes the overwhelm it. away. It, it is like having a guide who's walking in front of you, going up a mountain, and you're just thinking, right, well, if I just follow this guide, I'm not going to get lost. Right. So, that yeah, it's that. not that as daunting. It's, I always say it's not as daunting as you think it is. It will take work. I'm not going to suddenly now say, oh, yeah, you can just do it in, in an afternoon. It's going to take work. It takes tenacity. Mm. But as long as you, you know, you have the steps laid out in which way to go, it's not as hard as you think. Have you ever had to turn away a meat eater? <laughs> All the time. Believe it or not, I turn yeah. away 50% of the people who approach me. 
And a lot of people are like, well, what? what the hell? The reason, well, there's two reasons. Sometimes for a small reason is because sometimes people want to write fiction or children's book. And I just have to turn them away because I don't feel it's ethical for me to take money from someone when I have no experience of writing fiction or memoirs or children's books or recipe books. I, I don't have any experience in that so what i do is i i do know people within those industries so i just send them over and say you know go and speak to them uh, okay. so those people yeah. but the major one that i turn around is i would say um people who really really and this is specifically i would say happens in the plant-based and vegan movement people who really really do have something to say and they really want to impact more people and help more people understand that being plant-based is the only way to be for our survival, never mind other species and the planet. Um, but they don't have a business or a non-profit or something. They don't have the structure. And I will say to get a book to a professional standard, you need to budget for several thousand pounds or dollars. Okay. Mm. I mean, if you just want to wax something up on Amazon, then it doesn't have to cost you anything. I mean, in all fairness, we you can just create a Word document, change it to a PDF. There's free there's free software online where you can change Word documents into a PDF. You can upload it onto Amazon. You can just knock out some sort of cover on Canva. You know, that's a free software that you can use. And then you just upload, there you go. But that's not going to get you the respect and authority that you want as a professionally published author if you want to do it professionally if you want your book to look like the books you have on your bookshelf from major publishers like harper collins and penguin random house and simon schuster and all these incredible publishers if you want to get that level of respect then you got to do it right that involves hiring great editors cover designers mm -hmm typesetters they're the people who do the interior design of the book you need those professionals and they cost money so you mm. you need to think in terms of thousands not even hundreds of dollars i'm talking i usually put aside somewhere between four to five thousand dollars for each one of my clients just to pay for editors and cover designers and all these incredible mm. professionals so i turn away people when they come to me with sometimes a wonderful book idea but they don't have a charity or a non-profit or they don't have investors. Or I'm just saying, okay, well, that means you're going to now spend several thousand dollars with me. How are you going to make this money back? Because if you're waiting to make the money back from book sales, that's going to take years. Because your average mm. book, you can only charge... Kindle, you can only really charge about $5. Most people grumble after $5 because it, it's a digital download. So they just go, why are you charging more than $5 for something that just right. comes digitally into my device? With a paperback, you've got more leeway because it's a physical thing that's going out in the mail. But even then, you struggle to charge more than $10 to $20. So the margins are slim. You have to sell tens of thousands of units just to make your money back. Whereas the people that I'm working with, they already have an existing business or they're flipping into a new business. I'm working with a, a couple of entrepreneurs who are actually moving into a new business, a new brand, and the book is going to ignite that. With those clients, they usually make their money back within months. I had one gentleman who made his money back within two weeks because he published his book wow. and then he sent it. He's a HR consultant and he sent it 
to this company that he's been trying to get a contact with for years, sent them the book instead of like a sales pitch or anything. They were so impressed with this book, they gave him like a high five figure contract for a year. So the 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 money spent on me the money spent on me just paled in into comparison. He was just like, yeah, I've made the money back about, you know, eleven, twelve times over now what I spent. Those are the people I love working with because I want to make sure that I'm an asset to someone's business. Right. Not a liability. And if you're spending several thousands of dollars working with me, I need to make sure that within, I mean, okay, not everyone's going to make their money back in two weeks like this gentleman, but within the space of a few months, I expect you to not only make the money back, but to now be making even more money because you're making an even bigger impact in the vegan plant-based ethical movement. More people are loving what you do, want to be part of what you do. And that means you're making more money because you're making a bigger impact. Those are the, that's what I want to hear. Yeah, that's what it needs. And, and with those people who don't have that, I just think, oh my God, you're sinking all this money into me. It's the vegan in me that wants to protect other vegans. You know, it's just like, Mm -hmm. well, how are you going to make this money? But how you, I feel bad almost taking the money, you know, but then I need to take the money because I have these amazing vegan editors and cover designers. They, they need to be paid for what they do as well. So that's how I do. I would say one in two people I turn away and I just say, go and establish something first and then let's talk, you know? Mm -hmm. I love that you have an all vegan team too. It's, It's freaking awesome. It's important to me. There's something I realized, Jamie, is that, you know, as vegans, we are now becoming aware of, you know, it's not just enough for us to abstain. We To make an impact, we need to send a message out there in the world that we will take our money to places that do not promote harm and torture and murdering. And I've realized that, you know, for a number of my vegan authors especially, they wanted to work with me knowing that all the money they spend with me is not going anywhere else. It's only going into vegan pockets. So it's yeah. only going to be used for right things. It's not going to be used to harm anybody. Right. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, I think that what you're doing is so needed. It's so important. We need vegans taking over every area of the business. I do. That's my my core mission is an army of vegan published authors. I just want, I want my authors. I just basically want to be in a world where I can't move without falling over. One of my, because they're, they're, they're keynote speaking. They're on podcasts. They're everywhere yeah. on social media. And that's how we're going to get this movement to that next level where, like I said, we have a vegan normal world where we're no longer the minority. We just need to infiltrate. We need to be in government, you know? Yeah, we need to, we just need, I mean, we just had the first um, town in the UK sign the plant-based treaty a few weeks ago. Um, In the south, I'm like, I'm living in the north. I'm like, oh, I want my town to be the first northern town, you know. So I'm pressing for that. But the sad thing is, everyone in my council is not vegan. So we need Mm -hmm. to be, uh, but the way to get that kind of authority to be a keynote speaker, to consider yourself to be like, I could be a local councillor, you know is that authority comes from being a published author is yeah unsurpassed by anything else you know so yeah i want to empower people to and i see it in my authors i see they have this glow about them now and once they become public they do they kind of feel like yeah damn it i am shit hot i am pretty uh-huh. good do you know what I mean? and that we need that confidence because that's how we're going to get into positions of power and right. make that change 
Well, I will be coming to you one day. Not oh, yet. I'd be privileged, Jamie. If you ever want to write a book, I would be privileged to be your publisher. Oh, amazing. Yes, I still, I think I, I need to do a little bit more, you know, work, but. <laughs> when the time is right. Exactly. So where can people find you and how can they, you know, get in touch with you? Well, you can just go onto my website, The Vegan Publisher. It's pretty simple. <laughs> just type in The Vegan Publisher uh, and you'll find me. You can contact me there. Um, or just find me on social media. I'm at Vegan Publisher everywhere on social media. So LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you prefer. Even TikTok, although I don't really do anything on TikTok. I don't think I should be doing dance videos or anything like that. I don't think that fits with my brand, although I do love dancing. Um, but you can still find me, you know, and you still find me and you can send me a message. Yeah, I'm very, very easily, easy to find. Um, especially my surname is Daper Keisler and I've checked me and my family are the only ones in the entire world. I mean, there are other Daper Keislers, but they've obviously spelt their names differently. So the way that mine is spelt, I've, even mm. on Facebook, which has the biggest reach out of all social media, the only Daper Keislers you'll find is, is me and my family. So you you go and find me. I'm very, very easy to find. You you won't you won't miss me. That's great. My boyfriend's last name is Sonny, and it's like every other person. Oh, my God. Sonny's. Oh, gosh. Yes, that's a huge. That's a clan. That is a clan. Yeah, there, there's loads of them. Yeah, absolutely loads of them. Yeah, yeah. It's like a Smith or a Jones, really, isn't it? Right. Yeah. No, with my with my surname, you'll... If you're Mitali Depakaisa, you'll just find me instantly. Yeah, so Duke, get in contact with me. Tell me your book ideas. I, I do feel very privileged, Jamie, that i I'm doing this because now I, I just I just just before I spoke to you today, I was speaking to a gentleman called Peter who um, he he's from Hungary and he came over, you know, when he was close to being put into a concentration camp. And he's a gentleman in his late 60s now. So he lived through the Nazis and everything now completely vegan. And he now makes that link between the Holocaust and, and veganism and that it's an animal Holocaust. And he's looking to write a book now, so I've given some ideas to go and think about. I, I feel so privileged because of doing what I'm doing. I'm now having these amazing people contact me with their book ideas. So whatever book idea you've got, even if it's a bit weird or a bit strange, get in touch with me. Even if I can't help you, I'm pretty sure I know somebody within the book world who might be able to help you. So do get in touch with me because I just love to hear ideas. Oh, that is amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on, for sharing your story, for doing all the work that you're doing. I'm very inspired by you. And guys, get in touch with Mitali because we are going to just take over the world. Yes, we are. An army. An army of vegan Polish authors. That's what I want. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you are amazing and we will just be in touch. Thank you guys for listening.